Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and a couple of quick show notes before we get started. Uh, Number one, I want to let everyone know that uh, we are open for people to call in if you would like to speak directly to our guest today. The number to call is 610-664-4100, and please check out our new website at womentowatch.net. That's women the number two watch.net and you can check out our lineup and all of the other things we have going on with the show. So today I'm being joined um, actually by phone. Our guest is calling in from the beautiful Los Angeles area and her name is Melissa Rashawn Potter and Melissa Rashawn is the founder of Melrose Voice. She is also a model, an author and a motivational speaker. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. So so great to finally talk to you one on one. And um, Amazing, yes. I'm going to be using your your name, Melro, which I understand you go by, which is is a very cool name. Thank you. <laughs> um, just to give the listeners a sense of your background, um, I, I wanted to to kind of start with a statement that um, I I believe is so true, having read your bio and your background. And to me, um, Melro, you are the epitome of strength resilience and what can happen when you choose the life that you want as opposed to letting life circumstances dictate who you will be. Do you think that sums up who you are a little bit? Absolutely, 100%. I want to start, we always start at the very beginning with our guests, and I think the beginning for you is such an extremely important part of your story and why you're traveling around and doing the speaking that you are doing and um, and trying to tell your story. So I thought we'd start with um, your life, starting out um, with the day you were born and, and where that was and the circumstances around it. Absolutely. Well, you know, I it's, it's definitely been a long journey, but um, so to even be able to be on a call with you right now, I'm kind of pinching myself is that because I look you know, at my past and then where I am now, and it's like, wow. Um, So, you know, I was conceived by way of rape, and as you said in my bio, I'm a model. Um, It's really interesting how, you know, you come from 
such a horrible, you know, circumstance or background, and then to be given the opportunity to work in the beauty, beauty industry, is it's just amazing. But um, my mother was actually raped when she was 13 years old. She was approximately 13 and a half years old. She was raped by a man who was 53, and I am the living, you know, result of that rape. And so she was unable to raise me. It was primarily due to her age and then also, I mean, the fact that uh, it was a very traumatic experience for her. And I think just, you know, looking at this baby was a constant reminder of what she'd gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really sure why she decided to to still, you know, continue on with my birth but um, or carrying the pregnancy. But, she, but you know, thankfully she did. Yeah. But uh, she gave me up when I was nine months old. I was then shuttled around from, you know, different family members' homes, and then I ended up living with her mother. So my mother was actually living in foster care at the time she conceived me. And the reason she ended up in foster care is her mother was 15 when she had her, and uh, my mother was taken away from her mother. So it was a constant cycle Mm. of mothers not raising their children. And so I was shuttled around from different family members' homes and then, like I said, ended up with my grandmother. And, you know, it, things didn't change. I mean, the same reason why my grandmother, my mother was taken away from my grandmother was child abuse. And, you know, I experienced those same type of things in that home. So if any of your listeners have, you know, um, seen the movie Mommy Dearest, that was completely my life, maybe times ten. Mm-hmm. It was uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse, and um, even some sexual abuse there. So, Wow. Um, I, how long were you with your grandmother? I was with my grandmother uh, from on and off from the time I was about three until I was 12. Okay. And, yeah. and at 12 years old, then where did you go? At 12 years old, um, I snapped, and I uh, had had enough of my grandmother. I told her I hated her, which at that time, that's that's an emotion that I did feel. And what she did was um, she attacked me with some barbecue tongs, and actually uh, I was removed from her home after being attacked by the police. And, you know, I landed in my first of 23 different foster homes. That was the start of that journey. You know, and one might think, okay, well, how does a child go from, you know, how is a child, how does she live in so many different foster homes? But what was happening in the state of Washington at that time is um, the caseworkers weren't really up on, you know, overseeing this little black girl's care, to be quite honest. And uh, I just got bounced, I mean, I just got bounced around. It was like one home couldn't handle my issues. The other home could only keep me for two weeks, you know, one home was a Mormon family, and my grandmother, she didn't want me to live with a Caucasian family, even though they were great to me. Um, another home, you know, the my foster mother passed away from old age. I mean, it was just constant, constant, constant. And so 23 different foster homes. So what that means, if you can kind of wrap your mind around it, it's it's 23 different families that you are trying to get accustomed to, 23 different environments. 23 different kind of sort of moms and dads and kind of sort of siblings, 20, you know, not 23 different schools because 
primarily I was kept in the same school district, but about three different schools. There's a lot of change, a lot of um, just, you know, feelings of hopelessness and just feeling like I never really could settle in or, or never really had this family, you know, this family unit. My last home, I'll call them, let's call them the Johnsons. That's a really generic name. Okay. My last home was yep. uh, with the Johnsons. I was 15. Or excuse me, I was actually 13 at that time. I apologize. I left them when I was 15. And that, and it was in that home that I was actually um, raped at the age of 12 and um, experienced uh, the most uh, abuse. So it was, it, was, um, it was very difficult. There were times that I felt like I didn't want to live. Um, and just to quickly touch upon that home, there were 12 children living in that home, and all of us experienced some type of abuse, some worse than others. Uh, one of my foster brothers was actually sodomized. I mean, this is this is the truth, you know. I mean, it's ugly, but it's a part of my past. And um, while I didn't see it, I was actually in the home and around the energy, and and you know, we we were like modern day slaves. You know, they all 12 of us, they would get us up and we'd clean the house or we'd go out in the yard and we would do yard work. And um, my foster mother was very jealous of the fact that I was biracial, so she would buy me, you know, sun tanning cream so that I could darken my skin to be dark like her. And that's what she thought beauty was. And she mm-hmm. also didn't want her husband looking at me. Wow. And so... Um, when she bought me this self-tanning cream, my skin ended up turning orange. And at that time when I was going to school, you know, all the kids started teasing me. So, you know, here I am at this age of like 13, 12 and a half, 13. I've got, you know, I, I don't know who I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming into my own. I've got my hormones flaring. I have been through so much already. And then now you're telling me that I'm not beautiful and that I need to change myself. So it was, it was just a lot, and um, what ended up happening is I told someone at school, you know, what was going on in that home, and, I mean, it was like the SWAT team swarmed in on the home and removed all of the children. Oh, thank God. Care. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. You know, Melra, your story to me is, is almost insurmountable, um, what you went through. You know, mm-hmm. it's just incredible to me, and one of the key points to your story I think is that you always through all of this you had an you know an inner voice telling you that you were valuable and worthwhile and had a and had a purpose you know for living and I wanted to know what age that came to you was that something you remember as far back as when you were little or did that develop in you after these you know many many years of abuse and being moved around you know, I can distinctly remember at the age of 13 um, wanting to give up, and I remember laying on the floor in my bedroom, and I just I just said a prayer, and I said, God, please, if you could just help me, just help me get out of, of this situation. And I remember at that point that, you know, I just felt like a peace, and I couldn't really explain it, but it was just a peace that I was going to be all right, but that I was going to have to hang on. So, was that a turning point for you then at at twelve? Um, I would definitely say it was a point in my life where I felt like if I could just hold on 
right. then I would be okay. Yeah. So for sure. Um, and it was interesting because, you know, at 12, you know, you're still a baby. But to be able to have that inner voice just kind of coaxing you to just continue on, it, it you know, it's an it was awesome. And it is definitely what I needed because that, you know, many times when you're under so much, you're under so much drama, you're under so much pain or, or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. you just feel like you want to give up. You you literally feel like, okay, just take me now. I'm I'm done. But then just to have that that feeling on the inside, well, you know that that's where you are right now. But if you hold on, there's another side of this thing. Even if you don't know what that other side is, you can't see it, but you know that it's got to be better. That's the feeling that I felt when I laid there. Yeah, that's incredible to me. That's that's a hope that you wonder where is that coming from. Um, you know, 23 foster homes, was there anyone that came into your life during those years that that believed in you? Hmm. Um, you know, honestly, not that I can remember. Um, not that I can remember at all, to be honest. And, and that's not, you know, saying that, oh, you know, that I just had no one, but you know, when you're being shuttled around and you're in the foster care system, basically what it's like is you become a number and you just become lost in this system where you're just constantly transported. And um, imagine yourself, the best way I can describe it is imagine yourself at, um, you know, you're, you're signing up to get your driver's license and you're waiting in that line and you're just another number and when you finally get to the desk, they don't really see you as a person. They just see you. And, and no offense to anyone that works for, you know, the government, but I'm just saying they see so many different people that you just become some, you know, someone else that they have to um, tend to. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's like in the foster care system. You're just another – that's what it was like in the foster care system. You just become another child, another child with another sad story and let's just get them a place to stay and then move on to the next. Yeah. And unless we we physically see a mark on their body when we come to the home to do our visit, then, you know, we'll assume that everything is okay. Well, I mean, the reason, you know, I was able to live with the Johnsons for two years is when they would schedule the home visits the Johnsons knew when the caseworkers were actually coming, and all of the children, we were all brainwashed and we were all prepped. So we would put on our best clothes, we would clean the house, we would answer their questions, yes, we're fine, yes, we're being fed, we're happy, mom and dad love us, and we never said anything. You know, and, and I mean, if all looked well, there would be no reason to probe further. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's such a shame that that's the way the system is. And I know that there's a lot of people out there um, advocating for, for change in that area. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I I definitely don't have an issue at all speaking out a, about it. But also um, just when I'm careful when I speak about it because I don't want to paint the entire foster care system as this bad, bad place because it's not, but there's a side of it that can be. But, you know, honestly, Susan, I am not bitter about my experience in the foster care system because I know that it was part of my story. If I hadn't gone through it, there's no way that I would be able to be empathetic toward people that um, 
or toward children or people that have been through the foster care system or that are now living in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's just given me a compassion for others as well. Just and even if they haven't lived that type of life, they you know we all have experienced some type of heartache or some type of struggle. I get it. So I'm grateful for that. If you would have asked me at 12 if I was grateful for it, yeah. um, no. no. But now I can look back and say, okay, it you know it gave me character, it gave me compassion, it gave me empathy. I get it, and gave, it gave me um, a story. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, although it was it was great. I mean, that's that's quite a story. Um, I don't know that I've heard heard a story quite like that before. Thank you. Thank you. What was interesting is, is you know, when you are a survivor of any type of abuse, if the abuser doesn't actually acknowledge that it happened, you end up starting to question, um, well, did this happen? Am I inflating this? Or when you don't get an apology, for many people, it's hard to forgive the person that's hurt you. Mm-hmm. What I had to learn um, throughout my life is that the abuser most often or someone that's wronged you, they will never fess up to what they've done because they don't want to be wrong. I mean, it's human nature, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to know that it was real, but then you have to be able to recycle that pain and use it as your purpose. That's number one. Number two, I've never received an apology from those that have hurt me, those that have abused me, and that's okay. I still forgive them and I understand that it wasn't them, it was just maybe, I don't know, some dark entity inside of them that kind of led them to do that. And I also understand that this had to, I had to go through this and grow through this for others. So I've gotten to a place where it's like, you know what, I don't need the apology, I forgive. Because that forgiveness is freeing. I've gotten to a place where I understand that, uh, that it had to happen and, and, I hate to, you know, sound so nonchalant about it, but it is it it is what it is. Life happens, but um, I'm responsible for what happens to me now, you know, and I choose to live in joy. I choose to recycle my pain and turn it into passion, and I choose to live in love and peace. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, remarkable. You know, I, that it, forgiveness is for you, right? It was for you. It wasn't for them. That's so true. You know, there's a quote that says, um, Harboring unforgiveness is like drinking poison but expecting the other person to die. Yeah. Wow, that's a great quote. Yeah. So, but um, the end of that that chapter in my life is that I ended up moving out of the foster care system once the caseworkers found out what was going on. Mm -hmm. I was 15. I was removed from their home. I was shuttled around in different group homes. Um, Ended up staying with my grandmother. Um, because oftentimes you go back to to what you know, even mm-hmm. if it's unhealthy. Right. Um, and then, you know, super, super fast forwarding. Um, I received a letter last year from the state of Washington that uh, there's a lawyer that is actually um, going to be, you know, suing the state for the negligence of the children in that home. Um, now, because I'm 35 now, I actually can only speak about the case, but I, you know, I won't be awarded anything, and that's fine. But um, when I received the letter, I remember thinking, "Wow, you know, it it did happen. There was another child in that home that can totally attest to everything that I said, and it's real." 
you know, and even though I had gotten to a place of peace, Susan, I, I still, there was a part of me that needed to know that it was real, that needed to know that I did, that it happened and that there was justice. Yeah. So I will be actually flying to Seattle at some point this year and speaking on behalf of, uh, of the children in that home and the young girl who is suing them. Uh, she's about 24 now. I'll speak on her behalf as well. And I already told her lawyer up front, I said, hey, I don't need anything. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, it's an honor to be able to to see justice served. Yeah, and support her. Was she in the home when you were there? She was. She was actually, um, she was actually three. And then she left them when she was 18. So um, I only, you know, saw her for the two years that I was there, but she remembered me and they found me. Wow. Wow. What a, Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they, it is. Yeah, she was so little, but yet she remembered me. Yeah. And that's how they were able to find me. So. Well, thank goodness um, something's being done about it. Absolutely. Yeah. And the lawyer, um, it warmed my heart. The lawyer had said, you know, that the young girl was inspired by the story that she saw on YouTube that's out there. It's just about four minutes me talking about my journey mm-hmm. and that it gave her hope. And so, and that's when I started to realize okay, wait a minute, Mel, this is bigger than you. So you speaking, it's not just you speaking about what you've been through. This is way bigger than what you think. You don't have a choice. You have to stay committed to this walk of being healthy and whole. You have to continue to speak. Even when you feel nervous, you've got to do it because it isn't about you. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Yeah, you should be, it, it, you should be very proud. Really, really proud. I mean, when you having to continually talk about the hardest part in your life is not easy. But I guess when you focus on that that greater purpose and the and the young ones that you're helping, that you know don't have that inner voice, that's really powerful. Thank you, thank you. And you know, I some of your listeners may be th- you know saying to themselves, "Well, I don't have an inner voice. How did she find her inner voice?" Right. Yes. You know, um, for me personally, I've always had a strong faith system, even when it it didn't seem like I had a lot to to hold on to in reference to faith. Mm -hmm. It's just something that was implanted in me, so I guess you could say that it was God. But for those that are unbelievers or for those that, you know, just don't really feel like they're on that path, I would say that a lot of times when when somehow if you're able to silence yourself, you do have that you do have that little voice. It's the little voice that says, Oh, I think I better not go that way today. Oh, I think I better stay away from this person. Oh, I think I better call mom. You know, that's that little voice that I'm talking about. It's very simple. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times with all the commotion that we have going on, whether it's, you know, we're in some type of tumultuous circumstance or, you know, we're boggled down by work or we're always on our phones and always connected to, you know, something online, right? Sometimes if we're able to just turn all of those things off or step away for a moment, that's when we can truly hear. So remember I talked about I laid on that floor when I was 12 and I said, please, God, can you help me? I was quiet. And that's when I, you know, I I heard, you know, you need to continue on. You're going to be all right. There's yeah. another side of this. Yeah, that is such a good point and so true that we don't give ourselves the opportunities to, to listen and be quiet. Um, and, and you're right. When you do, um, you have that instinctive, um, you know, that 
that voice, that something that kind of moves you to the right direction. Yeah. But you have to pay attention. What is, you know, one of the questions I had for you today was, um, you know, is there a spiritual component to your life that guides you? And so what is that for you today? Absolutely. Well, let me say that I'm not a religious person at all, but I'm all about relationship. And so the difference between the two is that religion is a practice. It's a practice, and I honor people and respect those that have their own practices, right? Mm-hmm. You can be religious about your workout regime. It's it's a practice. But there's something about having a relationship. So I have a relationship with God. Um, it's very, very strong. Don't know how I would have made it <laughs> without that relationship. Right. Um, it's made me so whole, and it's it's given me that comfort when, you know, I've, that comfort of not having parents and such. I'll give you an example. The other night I was uh, I was uh, crying, actually, to be honest, and I, I said, I just really, really wish I could have a hug from a mom or a dad right now, God. And I said, I just want to be held. Because even though I'm, I've gotten in the place of peace, love, and happiness, and joy, and all of those amazing things, right? There's still residue. There's still residue from the past, and there's still a longing that I believe will always, always be there for parents. Well, the next morning, a girlfriend of mine, she sent a text, and she said, Hey, Mel, I had this strange dream about you, but I dreamt that God showed me you needed to be held. You needed to be cuddled. And I and I I mean there's no way that she would have known that that's exactly what I was crying for the night before, and so um, you know that let me know that okay there is a greater force out here that can hear me that can see me and everyone and knows exactly what we need we just have to tap into it yeah you know I, I liken my relationship with God like being connected to a light source right like I'm a light bulb and I'm connected to a source. When I'm not connected, the light's out. There's nothing there. It's black. You can't see. But when you're connected, everything you can see, there's there's clarity, and and you feel like you're you're connected because you are. So, how I really really started to develop my relationship with God was, um, to be quite honest. Okay, so I get out of foster care, um, and I go back with grandmother. And I'm living this life. I'm going to high school, and you know, I joined the the cheerleading team. And you know, I'm trying to turn my life around. And I'm going to church, and I'm just trying to, at this point, catch up on everything else that I, everything that I thought that I missed out on. So I never told anyone that I come from foster care. I went to a new school. I started wearing nice clothes, and I really just became this person where you would have no idea that I had ever been through anything because I tried to live my life like it never happened. Well, the first boy at school that said he thought I was beautiful, I believed him because I never really had been, you know, told that. I had been told that I was too light, so I should darken my skin. My hair was too nappy, so I should straighten it. I was, like, not black enough, not white enough. I was a strange-looking biracial girl. These are the messages that I've been told all my life. So when he said, well, I think you're beautiful, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm in love. So we end up starting this relationship at 16, and the first time we, you know, connected physically, I got pregnant. So now I'm 16 years old, I'm pregnant, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, history is literally repeating itself. You know, now I'm, I'm pregnant, and 
I knew that I wasn't going to have an abortion, but I also knew that, you know, stuff was about to get real. My life was about to really get real. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about babies, um, but I just knew that I was carrying one. So living with grandmother, she finds out I'm pregnant. She demands that I have an abortion. Um, I refuse to have the abortion. I ran away. I go live with him. His family was a mess, um, a lot of, you know, mental illness there. And then the first argument we get into, his love actually turned into hits in my face, you know, and then that turned to verbal abuse, and now I'm in this full-blown teen dating violence relationship, and I didn't even know how I got there. Because I'm like, wait a minute, you know, four or five months ago you were telling me that you loved me, and now I'm 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 in this violence, <laughs> this teen dating, like I said, violence relationship. Mm-hmm. So um, I end up moving, and now we're back to the old cycle of me being bounced around from foster home to foster home. Now I'm moving all over the place again. I end up moving away uh, to Portland, Oregon, with a mutual friend, and I thought, yeah, I was going to find peace there. There was no peace there. You know, the the lady I was living with, she was a bulimic, a severe bulimic, and it was just not a healthy environment. So I end up moving back to Seattle. Now I'm moving again. But I can't move back with my child's father, so I move with another mutual friend. She has no food there. <laughs> so I move out of her home. Nowhere to go. End up um, making the decision to live in a garage with my now my son's father. And, I mean, it, it, it was just it was awful. So the garage obviously didn't work out. I end up moving back with grandmother. We end up getting into a physical altercation, and now I'm moving back with the son's father. So I'm all over the place. I have no money. I have no direction. And by this time, I have a new baby. So I remember in the hospital when I had my son, I looked at him, and I knew. I was like, I've got, I I have to make some different decisions because I, Number one, don't want him to be taken away from me. And number two, I don't ever want him to be exposed to any any of the things that I was exposed to. And so um, I just made the decision from that point that I was going to live very differently. And some of the listen, listeners may be thinking to themselves, well, how? How, how are you going to, how are you going to live differently if you've never been shown how to live properly? I just, there was that inner voice that said, okay, you've, you've got to stand up, you've got to be strong, and you've got to make some, some decisions. You have to go to school, you've got to go to work, and you've got to give this baby everything that you've never had. And there is a quote that says, you can't give someone what you've never been shown, and you can't give someone what you never had. But again, due to, due to that faith, that I had no idea how I had it, but I did. It was just planted within me. It says that you can do this, Mel. I'm going to equip you with everything that you need to be able to give your son what you didn't have. Right. And so, you know what? And you and you did. I, You know, we have to take a quick break, Mel. When sure. we come back, I want to talk about now the second half um, yeah. of your life after Absolutely. that pivotal moment. We'll be right back. All right. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. 
Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear, by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. Uh, my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm being joined today by Melissa Rashawn Potter, and she is the founder of Melrose Voice. She is a successful model, author, and speaker. And uh, we spent the first half of the show um, with Mel really sharing some very, very personal uh, stories about where she came from and the adversity she faced as a young girl. Um, quite Quite amazing. And um, I, you know, the good news is you have certainly come out on the other side um, of a really, really tough beginning. And I I really want to find out where um, this strength came from, where the resilience came from. And, you know, we'll talk more about um, your ability to have hope when, as you said, you know, you weren't really shown that um, there was no mother figure for you, no father figure for you. But the birth of your son, I guess, was a an extremely pivotal point. It definitely was. And, you know, I, like I was saying before we, we went to break, I just, it was one look at him and I knew that the way that I was living, the constantly being bounced around, the constant drama, that I, I knew that that had to change if I expected to keep him and if I expected to raise him um, to be, to to see things that I had never seen before and to have a wholesome life. So the domestic violence, it did continue um, with his father and I, and it got to the point where um, courts were involved, and they said, hey, okay, uh, we've given you guys a lot of chances. We're going to go ahead and remove your son, Mel, from your care, since you obviously have failed to protect him, unless uh, you, you know, unless you find a place to live within 24 hours. Wow. So at that point, I mean, I, I'm just like, okay, well, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to be able to find a place to live. I've been couch surfing up to this point. And how, I, how have you been, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how have you been at that point um, feeding yourselves and, and, you know, what was your income, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I had a very, very limited um, limited amount of welfare coming in. Okay. So yeah. you were just getting by on that. I was that. just getting by. Okay. I was living with my son's mother, my son's uh, father's mother, excuse me. I was going to high school. He was there in the home also, but in and out of youth, youth detention for getting in into trouble um, and just, you know, the domestic violence when he came home. So it was it was constant drama. Mm-hmm. And that's why the courts obviously had to step in. Good. What so year was that? What year was uh, that? Now? That was 1997. Okay. Yeah. So I had a court-appointed attorney who she said, all right, Mel, they've given you 24 hours to find a place to live. We don't have a lot of options, but I do feel like I have something up my sleeve. Let me make a call to this Teen Parenting Homeless Shelter, and I'll see what I can do. So she calls this Teen Parenting Homeless Shelter in Seattle, and they luckily have an opening. They have one opening out of 12 units in this shelter. And she says, okay, I can grant you, they, they're going to grant you an emergency interview there. 
but you've got to wow them and you've got to let them know that you mean you mean business and that they should select you over the, you know, 30-something other teen mothers that need a place to live. No pressure or anything, right? Right. <laughs> so oh, my gosh. I go to the interview. I not only wow them, but I connect with them and I let them know that, listen, I don't even know how to make anything other than top ramen. I don't have any money. I'm not in college, but I love my son, and I um, don't have any family. But, again, I love my son. I love my son, and I love myself enough that I am choosing to um, really remove myself from a situation that, that really, I mean, is just going down a path of hopelessness a dead-end path, I should say. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they granted, they granted me the opportunity to actually live there. Would you say you were, you were committed at that time to turn Absolutely, your life around? Absolutely, 100%, yeah. because, you know, I knew that I grew up not knowing my mother. I, I knew that she grew up not being raised by her mother. Mm-hmm. And so when I became a teen parent, I said, no, no, the cycle has got to stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a teen mother, but I, I want to be the one that actually raises her, her child mm-hmm. out of the three generations here. So I was a, absolutely committed, and I was able to move in within the 24 hours. What was interesting, though, is that the shelter, it wasn't, you know, when we think of a shelter, we think of one open room with a whole bunch of cots and you know, I mean, you make your, your cot and then you leave and you come back and hope that there's a space available. It wasn't like that at all. The shelter was actually, it had 12 units and they were two-bedroom apartments, oh, <laughs> fully that, furnished. Wow, wow. And and that was in Washington State? Yes, that okay. was in Washington State. Okay, so then that allowed you. Now, were you able to complete high school? I, I actually made the decision to drop out of high school and get my GED. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I could work. And so I dropped out of high school, got my GED while I was living in this teen parenting home, and um, I worked. I worked at a flower shop. I worked uh, as a bank teller, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I mean, I I knew that I had always had some type of love for art, but I never really saw that translate translating into making money. So I'd seen my grandmother work at a bank, so I was like, oh, well, you know, I'll apply for a bank also. Okay. And so I'm living in this teen parenting home, and um, I have to tell you, it was life, it was, it's, they saved my life for sure. Because there was so much structure there, for instance. Um, we had, you know, nightly meet, or I should say we had once a week meetings every Thursday night in which they teach us how to cook or how to, um, they're just different life skills, maybe yeah. how to, you know, balance a checkbook. And then, you know, we had a curfew at 9 p.m. on the weekdays, 10 p.m. on the weekends. There were no men allowed in the building. There were cameras inside the units, outside the building. I mean, you had women that would come in and, and inspect your unit to make sure that you were keeping it clean. So all of that, it, it taught me structure. And it really, honestly, it was kind of like having, because the board of directors, they were nine older black women out of a church. So it was like being surrounded by, like, old school grandmothers. Yeah. And it, I, and it was awesome. Yeah, I was just going to ask who who ran that place. It and was actually a church. A church. Okay. Yeah. 
and a church full of strong, determined women, right? Absolutely. So we were required to pay 30% of our income. So I believe my rent was $60 at the time. We had to pay our own phone bills and we had to buy our own groceries. You know, that's so, yeah, so interesting to me that you, you know, you just talk about that structure and how important that was and how you were really probably yearning for that as a child. Absolutely. Yeah. And ha- and was there daycare? So when you were working, who was watching your son? Absolutely. So there was a daycare van that would come and pick up my son every day. And, um, you know, while I went to work, the, the before I went to work, the van would pick him up. And then I would just go pick him up from, you know, the daycare and then bring him home. Yeah. And one day I was shopping for diapers. And this woman actually approached me and, and asked me if I had ever considered modeling. And I have to tell you, at that time, I'm I'm thinking that she had to be mistaken because I'm looking at myself. I'm pudgy. I have on, you know, clothes from the Goodwill which now I have to tell you I would love to thrift at the Goodwill because I love thrifting. <laughs> but at that time, you know, I, I I definitely did not look like a model at all. But what was interesting is the woman was able to see beyond my physical, I suppose. And so when she first approached me, I looked behind me because I'm thinking, okay, she can't be talking to me. Yeah. But when I saw that there was no one behind me, I realized that she was. And I I, I said, no, I've never considered modeling, but... I would love to hear what you have to say. Because at that point, even though I had some, you know, type of low self-esteem, I'm just like, what do I have to lose? Let me see what this woman has to say. Right. And who was this woman? Who did she work for? Yeah, she was actually an owner of, um, I'll I'll just go ahead and say the name, TCM Models out of Seattle. Okay. one of the top agencies there. Great. Okay. So I um, I call her. Uh, you know, I wait about six months to call her <laughs> because I knew that I was living in that homeless shelter. I wanted to kind of get my life together. I, I kept her card on my refrigerator, and I would look at it, and I said, you know, one day I'm going to call. One day I'm going to call. And as soon as I moved out of the shelter into my own place, I, I made the call. Wow. And I went down to the agency, and, uh, you know, they – had some things that, that, you know, they had some stipulations that I had to adhere to in order to be signed. So I had to lose weight. I had to cut my hair um, and things things like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, they extended a contract to me. Um, so that was the beginning, really, of your career. That was the beginning of my modeling career. Yeah. What was interesting, I keep, I keep using that word because my whole life is like, wow, <laughs> humbly speaking, but um, my very first modeling job was actually a hand modeling job. And the reason why I found that so profound is because I have a scar on my left hand from foster care. It was from abuse. So the client was actually using my hands something that I looked at as ugly because on my right hand I have a third-degree burn from abuse on on my left hand. I have one scar on on my finger from uh, foster care. Anyway, uh, the client, they're using what I thought was ugly, and they're using it for the good. Mm. And they didn't Photoshop those scars out of my hand. So now when I look at the ad, which was a PNC bank ad, um, I'm just kind of like, wow. You're always reminded. I'm always reminded. And that let me know that, wait a minute, hold on a second. So 
what I deem as ugly is actually not ugly. It it gives me character. That's right. That's right. You know, I wanted to, yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's such an important message for young girls, especially, Mel, and I'm sure that you see this when you're out speaking to them, um, that you talk about the topic of, you know, pretty. What What is pretty? And how would you how would you describe that today to young girls? What what pretty means to you? Well, pretty is as pretty does. So in other words, if you're pretty on the inside, then you are pretty on the outside. Because all of us have some type of flaw, physical flaw. Mm-hmm. Even for the women that we look at and all we see is perfection. Really? No, there's there's a flaw there. But it doesn't matter how beautiful you you believe that you are on the outside. If your heart is dark, that's not pretty. You know, I have um, something I do every Wednesday. It's called selfie check. And basically the reason I've done that is because I used to be one of those girls who I would fire off like a whole bunch of selfies on my phone, especially when my makeup was looking good. And a selfie just means that you're turning your cell phone camera toward yourself so you can take pictures. Mm -hmm. And I remember this woman kind of gave me a look. And it was kind of like, you know, she was looking at me as if I were arrogant and I were a snob. And it was very arrogant. And I felt convicted at that point. And I thought, wait a minute. This woman doesn't know me. All she knows is that she saw me firing off a whole bunch of selfies. But um, what what image was I portraying to her? That I was just this model girl that was so hung up on my looks. But she would never know that I had depth. And then I thought about all the young girls out here and women and people that we just take selfies when we feel like we're looking amazing. And then we're filtering them to a point that we feel that it's perfect. But when we're at home and we're looking at ourselves in the mirror, we really don't like what we see. Why don't we like what we see? Because on the inside we're feeling depression. We're feeling unforgiveness. We're feeling anger and all of the other host of emotions and emotional issues that we have. Mm -hmm. So selfie check is about, yes, take your selfie, but self-reflect first. Empty out everything that's dark in your heart, and that's when you find your beauty. You can't filter out a nasty spirit. That's right. You can't filter out a bad attitude. You can only hide it for so long. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Mel, I'd love to ask you um, if you can talk about a success story that you have experienced throughout all of the uh, the motivational speaking that you do, and and you even do some speaking to sales teams, I understand, in in businesses um, to I try do. to motivate. Is there a story that comes to mind for you that you know you're most proud of? Um, for sure. There was a a girl, and she may be listening. Um, She was a cutter when I first met her about five years ago. Um, And she's no longer uh, a cutter. She's back home with her parents. She's um, going to therapy. And also she's been journaling. So um, I did a motivational workshop in December, and she was in attendance. And I encourage the girls, instead of writing, you know, subliminal posts on social media um, or, you know, just 
firing off at people, you know, to to put their thoughts onto their journal and and to also, you know, do their vision boards so that they have something to look forward to and they have a place to, to put their thoughts, a private place. So I've kind of watched, not kind of, but I I truly have watched her growth and and it's been a blessing. And so she'll write me messages and let me know how she's doing and how my story and, and things like that have impacted her. And it, and it blows me away every time because I live inside of myself, right? I look and I just see, I just see Mel, but there are other women and people out there that'll say, oh, you know, you've inspired me and you've impacted me. And I, and it's so humbling because I just, I look at myself as just being this this regular person on her journey and just sharing it as I go along. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's so rewarding, isn't it? Yes, it is very rewarding. So the end of my life, you know, I, I end up modeling. I end up moving to New York with my son by ourselves, stayed there a couple of years, um, was doing very well, ended up getting married, moved to Pittsburgh, um, had a baby, and lived in a beautiful house. And from the outside looking in, it, it appeared that all, you know, all was together. Now I'm married. I have another, I have a daughter who's beautiful. My son is growing. I'm happy, la, 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 and I was absolutely miserable. I started overeating to the point that I weighed about 190 pounds, so obviously I lost my modeling contract. And all of the issues that I hadn't dealt with, they really caught up to me. Mm. Everything, just the the people that I thought I forgave, the that I really truly hadn't, all of the stuff from the foster care, just the bulimia that I was exposed to, all of that, all of those things I was holding on to, they caught up to me. And in 2011, I said, you know what? Yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. So I'm going to check out and I'm going to just end my life. And a lot of people I've talked to, they said, well, oh, I can never do that. I mean, you are a mother. How could you leave your two children? Well, when you go crazy, Everything turns off. You sh- you shut down. You give up. You can't hear anything. You can't see anything. All you want to do is just disconnect from that light source. You just want to turn that light bulb off. You actually just want to, you not only just want to disconnect, but you want to shatter your own light bulb. And that's what I wanted to do. I just didn't see any value in my life anymore. And um, I walked to a dam, a reservoir in Columbus, Ohio, where I eventually ended up moving. And I stood on the edge, and I got ready to jump. And this woman came up to me, and um, I'll never forget it. She had on a helmet, and she had on rollerblades, and she placed her hand on my shoulder. And she started um, telling me that my life had great worth and how beautiful I was and that there was another side. And I'm... (laughs) I mean, basically, she was saying everything that that God had said to me when I was 12. And the next thing I knew, there were police coming from my left to my right and got me down from the edge. And uh, she was gone. I never got a chance to thank her. Some people say that they believe she was an angel. I, I don't know. I just know that she saved my life. Wow. So I end up in a psych ward. And it was interesting because, and there's that word again, but... 
I had been on, you know, five covers of magazines by that point. And now I'm, and, and let me just uh, go back for a moment. So I started overeating. I gained all that weight, but then I ended up losing it because I, I just stopped eating. And so I stopped eating and got down to about 110 pounds. This is right around 2011. So everything came crashing down. And I um, laid in that, that psych ward. And I remember thinking, I've been on five covers of magazines. How could I end up here? How could I end up here? And what? How, how, how am I going to pick myself back up and go and raise my children? How do you pick yourself back up when you're literally strapped down on a gurney in a psych ward? But there was that voice that said, you've got to get up, but you also have to stay up. And that's exactly what I did. So I got out of the psych ward. I ended up um, getting a divorce because it was the best thing to do. There was just a lot there, but it was the best thing to do. Um, I ended up going to therapy, um, ended up forgiving and truly forgiving and forgiving myself and loving myself and honoring myself. And then I picked up a microphone and I started speaking. And at first, Susan, I started speaking kind of sort of transparent. So I would talk about certain phases of my life, but not the truly ugly pieces. Mm-hmm. But then I just, the confidence and, and the bravery and the understanding that it wasn't about me and that somebody had to tell the truth that, yes, I'm a model. Yes, I work in the fashion industry. We make things look beautiful. But what it's really about is is really locating and finding your beauty when the lights and cameras are off, when I look in the mirror and I take off my makeup and I take out my extensions and take off my Lee press-ons or whatever, I want to really, truly like what I see because I have to live with me. And so I really became intentional and committed about that journey. And as I started growing, I started sharing. And and then it it ended up um, with me writing a book called A Beautiful Freedom, which will be available soon. It's in the editing processes now. And um, I talk about what it was like being bound in that psych ward, but bound on the inside too. And when you start to forgive and when you start to tap into strength and when you start to, to say, you know what, I am not a victim. I am a victor. You can, I can either be pitiful or powerful, but I cannot be both. I want to be better, not bitter. When you start to really speak those things all over your life and start believing them and honoring them, that's when you experience the freedom. So I got up out of that hospital bed, and um, there were two major things that needed to happen. One was meeting my biological mother, which I did do, and um, that was an amazing experience. It's actually on YouTube. If you go to YouTube.com, um, forward slash Melissa Roshan, I took a video. Something just told me to take a video when I was on my way to go meet her. And I talk about it, and then I posted a video the day after. I told her I forgave her for not being there. I told her how much I loved, loved her. Um, I ended up developing a semi-strained relationship with her, um, but there was a small bit of a relationship there. But then I also decided to meet my father. So in 2013, 
I drove to Chicago by myself and actually um, met him, looked him in the eye, told him I forgave him for not being there, told him I forgave him for everything, told him I loved him, told him God loved him, and made peace with him. And that's when I really felt like I, I could fly. And that's when I really felt like, wait a minute, if I talk about forgiveness, it's because I live it. If I talk about love, it's because I live it. If I talk about um, the dangers of harboring all of those things that once hurt us, it's because I've lived it. And I draw my inspiration for my own self from that because I know that there's people that are looking up to me, but I also know I have two beautiful children that need their mom to be whole. And then what about me? I need to be whole. So that's where I draw that inspiration and that strength and that hope from. Yeah, and I'm not going to stop. I'm going to continue to rise and continue to walk free. Mm. Yeah. Now, your story, really so, so inspiring. And you know, we only have a moment left. I, I don't want to leave without you giving your um, your website so people can reach out to you and get in touch with you. Thank you so very much. My website is www.melrosevoice.com. That is M-E-L-R-O-S-V-O-I-C-E.com. And, and I have Instagram. It's at Melissa Roshan, M-E-L-I-S-S-A-R-O-S-H-A-N. I'm also on YouTube. Okay. And you know what? I'll be putting that information out there as well on my own website. Thank you. Um, I thank you so much, Mel, and I wish you continued success. I have no doubt that you're going to see it and, and continued happiness as well. Thank you. This was, has been an amazing experience. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860. Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and please reach out to us for information on the show by going to womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two watch.net. Have a great week, everyone. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.